Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Ruddy Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In previous episodes, I've checked in with therapists like Fegan Murray and Jason Hansen. In this episode, I'm checking in with someone who isn't currently a therapist, but would very much like to be one in the future. Dulcie Jones currently works as a support time recovery worker in the NHS. She completed a BA in English Literature and has done a Master's in Psychology. Dulcie always had an ambition to become a therapist and during the first COVID-19 lockdown, she felt this urge to pursue the dream fully and left her previous office job. Dulcie's day-to-day involves supporting clients with severe mental health challenges or conditions to reintegrate into society, stop them feeling isolated and improve their independence. In this episode we talk about the work she does, her ambitions in the future and the satisfaction she gets from her day-to-day job. For Dulcie's mental health it revolves around a period of difficulty aged 11 years old where she was sick once in school. After that moment, Dulcie began having panic attacks that she would be sick again and became absent from school and her school nurse recommended she be checked for diabetes to find out what was going on and for Dulcie's peace of mind. After many tests, Dulcie was told by doctors that the problem was completely mental and in her mind and she then went on an intense course of therapy to find out what the problem was and overcome it. We talk about that process, where the trigger for this fear of vomiting came from and how she looks back on it now as an adult. So this is how my conversation with Dulcie Jones went. Dulcie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on to share your journey with me. It's great that you finally see me not worse for wear or completely spangled as that's the only times we've actually met out together. So um, how are you, pal? Hi, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm good. I'm fairly good. I've got a bit of a croaky voice I've got to apologise for. But apart from that, everything's really, really good. It'll, Thank hopefully you. it'll sound really sultry on the uh, edit for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's going to come across for, yeah, really sexy, deep and sexy. <laughs> Fingers crossed, mate. You are very much near the start of a journey towards becoming a therapist eventually, Dulcie. But I'm really keen to explore this and I'm keen to explore all the other issues that you've gone through on this journey and, and your wider journey. So without further delay... Are you ready to start the show? I am. Like I said, you're not a therapist yet, so we're going to call this your professional journey. But tell me first why you had this ambition to become one and how you've gone about achieving it so far. So it's one of those weird things where in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wanted to work in mental health at some point in my life. For some reason, I kind of decided that that would happen basically when I was around 40, 50. I was working in the film industry as a casting director and I loved it. And then the pandemic hit and I sort of had an epiphany moment where I thought, why am I not doing the thing that I've got in the back of my mind as the thing that I really always wanted to do? And why am I not doing that now? So 
I mean, this was one of the silver linings of the pandemic. It gave me time to pause and think because in the film industry, everything everyone was working on just shut down. So all sets were cleared and no one was doing anything for that first lockdown. So I really had time to talk to people. And I've got a family friend who's a clinical psychologist and I spoke to her and I did a lot of research and basically there and then I decided to quit my job, go back to uni, do a master's in psychology and yeah, begin this journey. So do you think then, obviously it's an easy question perhaps in hindsight, but do you think without the lockdown you'd have done this? No, I don't. I think honestly it's been just so lucky for me. I just can't imagine how I would have made that decision because I didn't have any time to think about these things. I was working like the longest hours ever. It was relentless work when we were casting film and TV. And I sort of feel like I was like slightly in the rat race. And I think so many people have said that as well. Like there just wasn't a time to pause and reflect. Like we were all just going from A to B and doing the routine that we'd all been doing. And obviously it was awful, the pandemic, but it's been one silver lining for me that, yeah, I had this amazing opportunity to really reflect on what would make me happy and what would fulfill me. And yeah, it's working Mm. mental health. Tell me about the work you do now then as a support time recovery worker. So what is it for the listeners who don't know? How do you help people? Also, obviously, whilst protecting patient confidentiality. Yes. So I did my master's and then I did a lot of research into psychology roles. And basically, I obviously not had any experience working in mental health. I'd done volunteering on a suicide helpline during my master's. But other than that, I had had no experience. So my role is sort of like an entry level mental health role. But it's based within the community. So I have a caseload of 14 people. They're all people who I'm based in Waltham Forest, the borough of Waltham Forest. And so it's all people who have one time or another been in a psychiatric hospital or are known to mental health services. And my role is literally to make sure that they aren't relapsing and that they're basically independent, living on their own, or I'm promoting them to be independent and help them sort of reintegrate into society. So yeah, I see all my patients weekly. We'll do activities, we'll go on walks, I'll meet them for coffee mornings, I'm just checking in, I'm seeing how their welfare's doing, but also like trying to get them, a lot of them are socially isolated, so trying to get them to like meet people within the community, and obviously that's like a massive thing for helping people with their mental health, and yeah, just trying to make their lives happy so that they don't find themselves back to where they've been previously. You said there about that, I guess, transition into seeing themselves as independent so how do you make that transition for them whereby they eventually see all these tasks that you're doing with them as simple too yeah it's such a good question I think nothing's linear so I'll have patients who are doing really really well and they're going to these coffee mornings on their own or they're going to group activities and then there'll be a week where they don't want to go they don't want to leave the house they're not interested in integrating with anyone and I think the only way that I see my role as being really solid is that I just stay consistent with them I don't push them I don't pressure them so they understand that there's a goal their goal is so that by the time I finish working them because I'm only really meant to work with people for three months they're further along the line of being independent than they were at the beginning but yeah it's just constantly reassuring 
being there for them. They're on the phone all the time as well. And just constantly suggesting other things that might help them and make them feel more ready to make the big steps to like go outside even just to leave the house. But that's how I see my role. It's very much like being incredibly supportive and quite like stable for them. When you're working with them, do they see themselves as being forgotten by society in some way or form? And do you think that that is true in any sense, in your opinion? That's a really good question. It's like, it's a big topic because a lot of my clients suffer from psychosis and personality disorders. So, so what, what is that? How does that manifest for the listeners who don't know? Because I know because I've experienced one very small episode of psychosis, but yes. having it on as a long term diagnosis is obviously a very serious. It's one of the most serious mental health conditions you can have. Yeah. So a lot of my clients hear voices. A lot of the voices they hear are incredibly negative. So I've got clients who's, who've had voices their whole lives telling them that they're not good. They're not worthy. They should kill themselves. That's a constant battle that they've got to deal with. They also believe things, see things that aren't there. And then with the personality disorders, they're very dysregulated in their emotions. So yeah, it could be quite manic sometimes. And then there can be real bouts of depression. And then I've got quite a few patients also with emotional unstable personality disorder. So it's again with the emotions, it's huge contrast in how they're feeling. And when they're really low, they're really, really low. So I think in terms of whether they've been forgotten by society, I think they've always had major struggles that they understand other people don't have. But some of my patients who are very unwell, they don't really realise that the voices aren't what other people hear. The other side of it is that they're very heavily medicated. So they understand like we've got, for example, a depot clinic where people come in and get their injections weekly. And these are antipsychotic medications. So they also understand that that's different to others who don't have to go to a depot clinic weekly or monthly or whatever it is. But yeah, for the most part, there's just a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of isolation. And obviously, all of my clients actually can't hold down jobs. So yeah, it's like that battle as well of wanting wanting to have routine, wanting to experience the day-to-day that other people do but not being able to have like the stability of of a role or a job that can provide that. So yeah, Mm. I think there's a slight sense of marginalization, but I'm not sure to what extent they necessarily feel it. I know they feel the isolation, but I don't know if they feel like forgotten by society, Mm. if that makes sense. What does this job do for your mental health? How beneficial has it been for you seeing the work that you've done perhaps having an effect on them and and that positive impact of perhaps reintegration or just being able to feel like they're a valued member of society? I'd say that my answer to this is twofold. I'd say for the one hand, it's amazing and fulfilling work. I genuinely really, really, really like all my clients. I know that's not like a necessary thing, but for each client, there's a part of who they are or whatever that I really enjoy being around and I have a great relationship with them so for that it's amazing and I do genuinely leave work feeling like I've had a good day but having said that a good day with one client could still be like I've had a very tricky time with another there's always at least one appointment that's gone really well or I felt great from it and usually one that's been a bit harder and for sure I mean we're not perfect so I try as much as I can to not take anything home with me. And that's a constant 
thing to work on. But yeah, as I say, like there's clients who can be very, very depressed. And I do deal with clients texting me saying they're suicidal or they're going to kill themselves. And that's just the reality of my role because they are transitioning from being usually in psychiatric hospital went back into the community. It can still be very tough. And a lot of the time, if they're not concordant with their medication, that can lead to another bout of severe illness. So there's positives and it's been good for my mental health in some ways. And in other ways, it's been challenging and it continues to be challenging. But I think that's completely to be expected in any kind of sort of mental health role that you take on. You spoke there about being able to healthily not take your work home. So how do you do that? How do you healthily detach in your role and ensure that your mental health isn't compromised and it's protected so you can do the best job you can for them? Yeah, so I'd say this is like the million dollar question because even like, as I said, like family, friends or people I know who are therapists, they've been doing it for years and years and years and still there's always the one client you worry about or you'll find yourself thinking about when you're home. I'd say I've put in like specific measures such as I walk home which just the act of doing exercise to get from work to where like my place of where I live is incredibly helpful I find myself sort of putting on a podcast usually and then just slowly letting the day like slink away that's been really good I'm very strict about my work phone so like my clients can contact me between the hours of nine to five after five o'clock my phone will not be answered and they all have the out of hours mental health direct numbers. So I know that they know there's someone else they can call or message, but I won't be answering just because I need to set those boundaries. And then other than that, like I've got an incredible supervisor who I can talk to. And then within my family and friends, there's people that I can just like talk to or confidentiality. I don't mention the names, but it's always important to talk as this whole podcast is about. So yeah, I'll talk with colleagues at work and I'll talk friends and family. And just that act of talking about it always, always means that, yeah, I feel like I'm less taking things home. You described off air to me that this role is very much like you working out a puzzle in your mind for how you need to help these people. So how do you go about working out that puzzle? Um. So for my initial chat with the clients we'll always talk about things that they enjoy hobbies pastimes that they did maybe before they were in hospital aren't really unwell and that will be kind of like the basis of what I focus on with my my intervention but each week it always kind of brings up other things so I've got a client who it just became really clear that every time they got a letter from the council anything to do with benefits they just got incredibly anxious and they'd really, really struggle and they could even be like tearful, call me down the phone, panicking. So I've started with my intervention with them, even though we were going to actually be focusing on exercise, I've also like really supported them in like setting up direct debits for benefits or bills. And I've kind of started like calling the council for, on their behalf and just like easing them into it. That becomes less of an, like a trigger for them. 
But yeah, it kind of naturally progresses and unfolds with each client what I realize that's really going to be helpful for them. And as I said, it's, it is frustrating. I only get three months just because the case, there's just so many people in the service who need support that you can feel like you're really making progress and then like your time's kind of coming to an end. So it is important to, in those three months, try and get like, do the best work you can with them and get them to a point that's, you know, successful and what, what we wanted to achieve. But yeah, like you really work together. Yeah, it's a te- sort of teamwork role, I'd say, between me and the client. I want to reflect now on your journey. And it's interesting you brought up what you, you were doing with that client there. So building on that, what has been your proudest achievement on this journey so far? Oh, I don't know. I've got a client who was really struggling with going back to university, dropped out and wasn't ready to go back. And I've been working with them. And then recently they managed to go to an open day, which was like a huge, huge deal. And after the open day, like enjoyed it and genuinely was like, I think I can really do this, which was amazing. But even just like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the big things. I just have clients who, after three months, I've just noticed such a difference. They started going to like activities. They've gone to like volunteering in like a kitchen just getting people to like join groups or volunteering roles or coffee mornings and making friends with other people is like the main part of my role and if that is achieved which it can be that's for me like a big success and then as a final question before we move on what has this journey taught you about yourself so far oh goodness um I think it's taught me because I work with people of all diversities ages that you genuinely can find a common ground connection with anybody in the community. And yeah, I'm working with people that I've not come across before. I've got people who are like in their 70s, 80s. Obviously, I've got, I've had relationships with my grandparents, but like no one else of that age. And I'd say like I have a really good professional relationship with them and we have a really nice time together. That in itself is great. Like, yeah, I've just realized that I can work and create relationships with anybody, which is really, really nice. Also, I guess resilience as well. As I said, mentioned before, like, yeah, getting texts a lot of people who are suicidal and like really, really struggling and all people I thought were doing so well and then suddenly have to be sectioned. It's really hard and it, it it's sad as well when it happens. And yeah, I think this role or any role really in mental health, like you do realize like the resilience you have and like, that the want to obviously keep continuing I keep learning things about myself like it's definitely one of those roles where like everything's laid out there for you like you have to just keep moving we've talked all about Dulcie the mental health professional I want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey so I ask all my special guests this question first walk me through early life teenage years And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Dulcie we meet here? Okay, so early life, I grew up in like a really close-knit family. I have a mum who should have been an interior designer and wasn't. So we moved house 10 times in my childhood just so she could do up houses. No joke. So yeah, very close-knit family. I've got two older twin brothers and then my parents. And then if I'm tying in my mental health journey alongside my actual 
childhood journey, I started experiencing panic attacks when I was in my last two years of primary school. And I kind of mentioned to you off record before, but these were all triggered by being terrified of being sick. And the panic attacks were so bad that I was missing like every lesson I'd be running to like the school nurse and they would give me bananas and chocolates and things and I'd get better. So they told my parents that they thought I had diabetes, like low blood sugar. So I had all these tests at hospital and it wasn't anything physical. And then I went to a counsellor in the hospital. They realised obviously it was all mental. I think I had 12 sessions and I don't remember anything we talked about I just remember playing with like blocks and stuff when I look back on it now I think it's so fascinating being a child psychologist because obviously you have to work in such different ways with children to like get out what you what you're needing to get out so yeah I just remember playing with like blocks and like drawing things for him anyway fascinatingly he kind of drew where he thought it was coming from which was my science teacher had started telling us about global warming and had told us that the planet was gonna explode in 50 years and obviously my brain just I just couldn't cope with it it was so terrifying and that came out in being terrified of throwing up and I kept thinking I was going to be sick and that has followed me in life I don't have panic attacks now but even now in my role I've got patients who are unwell like physically unwell as well and I had one patient be sick in front of me and I just ran out of her house and it was so unprofessional I had to wait and then I came back in and I explained to her why and to be honest like it is something I think about that I need to probably do some hypnotherapy to try and combat because yeah it's just one of the weirdest things I've heard another guest on your show with probably more severe but still like all around sick and throwing up and it's just massive phobia for me still Mm. even though it's such a I mean quite normal bodily function yeah (laughs) <laughs> but yeah I haven't I've been sick once in my whole life when I was 11 and that's this was when the panic attack started and never again and I hmm. pinch myself really 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 hard if I think I'm going to be sick and honestly I'm never ever ever sick even though there's been times especially when I'm drunk where I should have been <laughs> and it's never happened so yeah it's fascinating so that was proper anxiety at 11 which is quite a young age and then yes yeah, so I had the counseling then and then I was fine obviously still scared about it but yeah so much better not missing lessons went to school went to secondary school loved secondary school had a little bit of a stress in my last year where it's embarrassing to admit but I was a head girl and I think that's not embarrassing a little bit (laughs) that's proud (laughs) (laughs) but I think I took the pressure of that quite hard and I slightly started having a few panic attacks at the beginning of the year with that role there was times where because the head boy and head girl at my school had to sit on the stage in morning assembly with the headmaster and I remember just looking back down on these faces and just thinking oh my goodness I need to get out of here like I need to literally find the nearest exit and run so that was a bit scary because I'd not had a thought like that in so long So I actually did go and see the school counsellor who was actually amazing. And we had a few sessions and that luckily, luckily just passed. But yeah, so I've had two times in my life where I've had counselling and both times I've found it just like unbelievably helpful. And I think that for sure has had some impact on like my career decisions now and me thinking one day I'd like to have that role myself. 
And yeah, I can't say enough good things about just talking about how you're feeling, letting it out, letting someone who's neutral hear these thoughts as well. And just gaining that different perspective. Like, I just think it is just so amazing. And it doesn't even have to be for anything specific. Sometimes you just need to talk and you don't even realize you need to. So, yeah, that's a little history. And then I went to university and had a good time. (laughs) (laughs) And then entered the world of work. So, yeah, I guess that's very brief, brief history. Mm. I want to go back to the vomit anxiety a little bit if we can because like you said I had Maddie Spencer who's an amazing guest that was right at the start of the podcast to be honest it feels like an absolute yonk ago and she talked about like you said it being quite a severe form and what she had was something called emetophobia which is essentially like a pathologized fear of vomiting so if you hadn't had gone through that therapy and it had been addressed and, and recognized. Do you think you could have developed it to a point where you had emetophobia yourself and it would have severely impacted your life now? 100%. 100% because even now, I can't be sick. Even now, if I think I'm going to be sick, I will pinch myself. It's not like harming myself to a bad degree, but I am harming myself to stop myself from being sick. And I think when I look back on how I was at 11, like, honestly, I thought if I was going to be sick, the world was going to end. It was so scary. Like the thoughts, I remember just the thoughts and like, she, I'd have to, I'd be sitting in a classroom and just run out. And like, no 11 year old really does that. Like, you're just going to sit there and do what the teacher says, but I would literally physically have to run out of the room. So I think, yeah, a hundred percent when I was listening to her talk about it and like, yeah, she, she's just, I don't think she dealt with it at the beginning and then it it developed. And yeah, I totally related to so much of what she was saying. A hundred percent. Yeah. Even now it's terrifying to me. Absolutely terrifying. When we spoke off air, there was a a really nice part where you said you wanted to get better so you could support, you know, your your friends on nights out if they were ever sick or, or things like that, which was a really nice way to put it. I thought, when did you come to that mindset of, personal responsibility for your own mental health and wanting to get better so you could end up obviously supporting others yeah I mean I think I think it's not a good feeling when you can see a friend struggling unwell and it's almost become like this unspoken rule of amongst my friendship group like if you're gonna be sick like you have to get away from Dulcie which is terrible it's so bad and like it's literally happened before where someone was sick and then they just went sorry dolls and I was like oh my goodness this is so wrong it's so wrong I definitely don't want to be that person who is like taking the spotlight away from someone who's actually unwell so they have to worry about me especially when it's something that it is an irrational phobia and it is so frustrating having an irrational phobia because you want to rationalize it like you want to say to yourself this is so stupid like get it out of your system and then move on it's not that bad but I honestly can't rationalize it and it is really frustrating let's reflect on this mental health journey then Dulce so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to that 10 11 year old Dulce who was running out of class being scared of vomiting because of this subconscious fear that you ended up coming to the realization that the world would end due to global warming what would you say to her knowing what you do now oh my goodness I haven't thought about that I think I just want to say like isn't it so crazy the brain is just so crazy it's fascinating that 
there was this one thing happening in science class and then this one thing happened where I was sick and it was horrible for the first time and my brain just sort of merged the two issues together and it built up this phobia within me like I still find that so so almost incredible that the brain can do that to be honest I think I try and say to my 11 year old self the global warming stuff is a separate issue and it continues to be a huge huge issue obviously but the sick part I think I would just try and knock on the head immediately and just say it is not as bad as you think it is and it will happen when it just needs to happen that's the only time it will happen when your body literally needs to get something out of you because you're going to be very unwell otherwise so if I could actually rationalize that to an 11 year old I would and just say it's important that this happens it's the whole point of it happening because the global warming you know because of how I felt at 11 like I'm also obviously really passionate about doing my bit for what's happening to the world but yeah that that's a separate societal anxiety and I think it's it's the sick part that really needed to get dealt with we've come to our final topic of conversation Dulce and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests which is a general natter and a chat about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health I am very lucky to say I would say my mental health is very good at the moment. Excellent. On a scale of 1 to 10, 8? 8.5? 8.5. 8.5. Okay, lovely. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I'd say 11. So when the vomit anxiety started? Yeah, when I started going to see that psychologist and the hospital said, it's not physical, it's in your head. That was that a pretty was moment. stark moment for me, yeah. And then building on that, can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? Did it feel like a big burden or a big moment or perhaps a big weight to be lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think I don't want to keep banging on about the same thing, but I think before I was 11, I wouldn't have had any of those conversations. And then, yeah, 11, I was obviously speaking to a professional and that made me realise, oh, wow, I am quite stressed about something. And then also, I would say in that year, that same year, there were girls in my year who started noticing bodily changes. And I really, really remember a friend crying when she couldn't fit into her jeans anymore I mean literally just because she was growing hips like yeah, I was gonna say the hips are widening yeah yeah. yeah yeah and literally I remember her wailing on her bed in oh, tears God. not understanding and similarly people were starting their periods then and I remember all of us girls like having to like sort of any of the girls in our group especially that girl whose hips were widening calm her down and say how beautiful she was and that's a memory I'll never forget because it was like really scary time as well for us like we didn't puberty really is un- scary yeah really scary puberty is so terrifying but yes I'd say that's when I remember realizing like how beneficial it is to kind of be there for other people as well and to actually like talk to them and support them yeah so I say all of 11 12 was just like a very big year to me in terms of like mental health and understanding and then 
obviously you've spoken about the vomit anxiety already. So what other things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, mm. particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Definitely think this is something that will change throughout my life, change throughout everyone's lives. I'd say sometimes a trigger for me is if I think someone's not treated me well. I start internalising the thoughts of why I thought that that they were a bit mean or standoffish. And that's when I kind of, I describe it as like feeling blue. I just sometimes will have a day where I just know I'm not myself and I'm not good in my personal life, ironically, at always, always saying how I'm feeling. And sometimes I'll just do the silent thing, which is really bad. Boys, I know what to do when you do that. <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah, my poor boyfriend is always like, oh, does, does anything you want to talk about? And I'm like, no. But then I, then I kind of talk to myself, weirdly. And I kind of like right. work my way through that. But I say, yeah, if I feel like someone's being like a little bit spiky mm. that's what I find difficult okay like making fun like thinking it's bantery but after one I'm not finding it that funny mm. I struggle with that I, I have that when someone like goes a bit too hard on the banner when they've only just met me I'm like you don't know me mate. oh yeah if they've relax. only just met yeah. me then that's really uh, bad. relax relax mate yeah someone so I've, so I've seen people have tried that before and I'm just like oh but really going hard on the banter in general is just always not nice. Like, I just think everyone can take certain banter and then there's like a threshold that people, that people yeah, can, yeah, yeah. it just wants you past that. It just feels like slight bullying. I mean, I can take pretty outrageous banter at the, at the best of times, but it's just when someone doesn't know me well enough. I'm always like, yeah, yeah you, you need to be quiet and down, mate. Oh my God, if they don't know me, you haven't got the authority. Yeah, yeah. Horrified. Yeah. <laughs> conversely then on to sunnier climbs what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health what have you found has worked and what have you found that you've tried but haven't I don't enjoy mindfulness I'll say that from the outset I've really tried and I understand how beneficial it is and we do it with our clients in our service but for me I almost get frustrated by the person who's speaking and talking to you and coaxing you through it. And I feel like my mind is racing. I'm really bad at that. What I prefer to do, as I've mentioned already, I'm a really big walker. So I'll like on average about 16 to 20,000 steps a day. Um, wow. Yeah, I walk between all my clients. I don't get any public transport or drive. And that I think is just so good. And I know ex it's so boring to say exercise is really good because for the most part, no one really enjoys like most people want to watch Netflix on the sofa, but exercise is just so, so good for all kinds, all kinds of things, but especially mental health. So yeah, that's one thing I'll do. And also like just being around people that I love. Like, I think that helps so much, even Connection. if you're not talking mm. about things, obviously talking is so important and I'm a work in progress. I need to do it better as well. But yeah, just actually being around people you love and just doing things you love with them. Can't beat it. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Um, to be honest, I actually read a lot. Grief Works by Julia Samuel is amazing. There's a book called The... I'm not going to remember it now. It's by a psychotherapist called Stephen Grosh and it was like a New York Times bestseller but it's called like the 
Is it the body keeps a score? It's not that, is it? No. This is when I should have like had this ready already. <laughs> I'm tempted whether to leave this in or, or keep the delay. Wait, if I find it, I'll tell you. And then yeah, yeah, can... keep, yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. Oh, it's called The Examined Life. How We Lose and Find Ourselves, Sunday Times bestseller. Absolutely fascinating. Each chapter is a different client he had over the spanning of his career as a psychotherapist. And it's themed, so it's like on loss, on love, relationships. And it is just so fascinating. Yeah, I think Julia Samuel in general as well is just a great person to listen to. She does a lot of interviews. She worked a lot with grieving families, baby loss in mm. her career. These are the ones I've talked okay. my head. Interesting. And maybe I'll add a couple of those to the list. As a final question then, Dulce, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Well, I think that's a fascinating question because genuinely, I don't even think we're touching the surface on some communities. Even like within my caseload of literally only 14 people, I've got one client whose parents think she's been affected by gin, J-I-N. Wait, 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 what? As in like a spirit? Yeah, she suffers from paranoid schizophrenia and she's got a learning disability, but they aren't really pushing her medication because they don't believe in mental health disorders. And then I believe she's possessed. Yeah. By an evil Jesus it's like Christ. an evil spirit. Yeah. It's like South Asian communities. Yeah. Um wow. I never knew that. That's mad. So it just goes to show like how far there still is to go. I mean, even within like our community and society, there's still obviously like major marginalized groups and stigma still to break through. But yeah, when you actually look at the big picture of the world, there are genuine communities who don't believe in mental health issues. So there's a lot more to do. And I think honestly, the only way of tackling it is just constantly trying to get into these communities, talk to people, get people to understand this is a safe space, that what they're feeling isn't anything physical, it's actually mental it's a huge issue and it's something actually that you know the NHS obviously are working on so much themselves and like talking therapies they're always trying to access more communities but yeah does that answer your question I don't know if it did yeah no 100% and that's an answer I've not had before and that's really eye-opening to me because very aware that as you all know Dulce that we in society touch a lot of mainstream in air quotes, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, but we don't actually cover a lot of the real stigma in other more stigmatized mental health conditions. You know, like you've said on this podcast, paranoid schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, to a certain extent, some very severe forms of eating disorders, grief, because people don't want to stare at the pain for too long. How do we have conversations about that? You know, there's so many of these things which I try and cover on the podcast, but I don't really think are being covered in the mainstream as of yet anyway yeah totally agree 100 percent. yeah and yeah the personality disorders psychosis you know it's literally happening under your nose in society so many clients so many clients so yeah it, it should be understood more definitely i think like society's understanding of schizophrenia is is a awful media focused lens and it's not the reality of the condition at all and yeah, I, I've honestly been shocked by certain communities and what they understand to be like mental health or lack of. And on that cheery note then, Dulcie Jones, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. 
Thank you so much, Freddie. I've had a lovely time. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking podcast. A big thank you to Dulcie for being my special guest on this episode, for talking about her childhood fear of vomiting, her journey into therapy and out of it, and how she took personal responsibility for her mental health. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Spread the word about Vent. Maybe drop us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us even further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation by going to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>